The black holes of nature are the most perfect macroscopic objects there are in the universe. The only elements in their construction are our own concepts of space and time. The Interplanetary Podcast. The exploration of space for the benefit of all mankind. Your hosts here in London, Matthew Russell and Jamie Franklin. Oh, yeah, baby Chandra. I wasn't sure if you were going to give it its long name or not. <laughs> I was hoping you would. I think it's Subramanian Chandrasika. My word. Well, I enjoyed Subramanian that very much. Uh, a Nobel Prize winning physicist who died exactly one quarter of a century ago today. 25 years ago today. Rest in peace. Hugely important. Well, the Chandra Space Telescope, for example, is named after him. No diggity. But Jamie, I want to uh, talk about arguably the start of the space race. Well, well, then I want to talk about it. <laughs> It's the 21st of August, 1957, and something quite dark is happening in the Soviet Union, and that is the R7 Semyorka, or as the Americans called it at the time, the SS6 Sapwood. The SS6 Sapwood. The Sapwood. Oh, man, they've launched the Sapwood. And yes, this was the first successful long flight. It went 3,700 miles uh, on the 21st of August, 1957, with a dummy warhead going into the Pacific Ocean. Oh, God, yeah. And it's the first successfully tested multi-stage intercontinental ballistic missile. Now, why would I even think that that was a good thing? Hmm. Because in actual fact, what happened was that was modified and months later... That missile was used to launch Sputnik 1 oh. and uh, Sputnik 2. In, and, of course, it was modified further and Yuri Gagarin flew on it. And go forward over into the future and uh, you'll find that even the Soyuz 2 of today is based on that original R7 Missile, intercontinental ballistic missile. So what you're saying, so, Matt, is that you can't make an omelette without breaking some eggs. Yeah, well, the R7 actually turned out to be just a ludicrously expensive weapon, just totally impractical. Yeah. You'd have these enormous launch sites that would just be knocked out. The, the, the instant you started a war, they would get instantly knocked out. So mm. it was too, deemed too expensive, but all that infrastructure was there for human spaceflight from that point onward. So, you know, there was a bad thing. And often with bad things, Jamie, comes good things, oh. which is what I'm keeping my fingers crossed for COVID. You know, that's is- what I like about you, Matt. You are Mr. Silver Lining, aren't you? Have I got that reputation, Jamie? I've got a feeling I have the opposite you reputation. You thought I was going to say Mr. Silver Hair, didn't you? But I didn't. Mm-hmm. I think you were. You used to be quite pessimistic, but Matt, in your old age, you're you're very optimistic. I believe that you are understanding that that we're we're not long on this mortal coil. No, that's right, and and um, that's kind of flying in the opposite direction to the normal aging process. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> ah, do you know what, Jamie? It's also remember the big solar eclipse in America. Oh yeah. 
the recent one. Yeah. How long ago do you think that was? Um, was it last year uh, or was it the year before? I'm going to say the year before because it wasn't that the one that Trump looked at without wearing glasses. <laughs> yeah, I think it was. Yeah. No, it th- yeah, it's three years ago. What? That doesn't seem right. I, I, I feel yeah, a bit I, sick. If someone had said it was last year, I'd believe it. But yeah. no, no, three years. It wasn't even, yeah, yeah that's Jeez. incredible. I, I thought that, that blew my mind yeah. this morning. Yeah. Uh, there's two craters on Mars, Jamie. Just two? There's, well, there's more than two, yeah. but there's two. One called... <laughs> That's a good. That that is a good point, though. There are definitely more than two craters on Mars. Just pulling you up on it. Yes, but there's there, there's one called Maredi mm. and one called Green, a green crater on a green oh. crater on Mars. Are you sure? But um, yes, it's actually named after two astronomers that were born on this very day too. Oh. Now remember we were talking about naming conventions, which I which I, I quite kind of dig. But naming conventions for Mars is quite simple. Yeah, large large craters is deceased scientists or anyone who's contributed to the study of Mars. Yeah, small craters though are villages of the world with a population less than a hundred thousand. Oh, so there might be a studly crater. You reckon? Or um, yeah, no, I doubt it. Uh, there might be an Ilfracombe crater, maybe. Oh, the chance would be a fine thing. Uh, then there's large valleys uh, named after the things that Mars used to be called in various different languages, or maybe still called in various languages, and small valleys, which are the classical or modern names of rivers. Don't they call um, valleys on Mars after uh, podcast hosts? If only there was the think? Franklin Vallis. Oh, yeah, that God, imagine cool, that. It? That would be quite cool, wouldn't it? Alas, no. Alas, Alas no. no. Both large craters, these two. Maraidi is named after Giacomo Filippo Maraidi, who was born on this very day in 1665. And he's the nephew of Cassini. Oh, come on. But he's on. also the... Yeah, and he's the uncle of Jean-Dominique Maredi. That's quite a family. Yeah, the crater's named after the pair of them. So it's not one or the other, it's actually both of them, which is weird. Uh, But he was the first person to notice the corona that you see when you look at a solar eclipse. He was the one that noticed that it wasn't part of the moon, that it was an actual fact part of the sun that we were seeing. I mean, that's, that's pretty important. That is important, isn't it? As things go, as discoveries go. Yeah, so so he was the first person to really nail that one. But he, and he also noticed that the ice caps on Mars are not quite on, on the sort of top of where they would be. They're sort of offset from the rotational poles of the right, planet. Right, Yeah. Yeah. And he, and he was also, apparently, although he wasn't recognised at the time for this, he was involved in the discovery that light was a wave. God, I mean... Or has wave-like properties. He's ticking the boxes. Yeah, he's ticking the boxes. Well done, Giacomo. But well what about done. Green Crater? Is it is it named because it's green? Do you alien think? blood, probably. <laughs> yeah, it's just... It's where alien blood has been yeah. spilt, and that's why they know life is on Mars. Read about it in the Daily Star. Read about it in our old mate... What's he called? Oh, Marcus Allen. He uh, Marcus Allen's magazine. He almost magazine. certainly would endorse that theory. Yes. Shout, so shout out to you, Marcus. Are you still a listener? Are you still a listener? Yay. Marcus, 
come on, come back on, Marcus. All, we all is forgiven. We're only we're only pulling your leg, or are we? Prove or prove to me, prove to me, Marcus, that you're that I was pulling your leg. See, see what I've done there. <laughs> yeah, you, that was excellent work. I um, want beyond green. the reasonable doubt evidence that I was pulling your leg. Sorry, Matt. Carry on. Green. Is it falsifiable? <laughs> green crater. <laughs> green crater is named after a chap called Nathaniel Everett Green. Solid. He was actually Queen Victoria's art teacher. Oh. Well, that's, which is not bad, but he was also the founder of the British Astronomical Association, the BAA, mm. um, which I gave up my membership of that to join the British Interplanetary Society. So I, I, it was like I had to make a choice because funds were yeah. low. But yeah. I might actually rejoin. Do you know what? I, I might I might go back but because go. it was a very good. You, you've got uh, all sorts of stuff. Uh, but And he was also the president of that. But what he was very well known for was because he was a great artist, he would draw Mars. He would get his telescope out and do brilliant drawings of Mars. And he was the first person to point out that perhaps the canals that others were seeing were probably an optical illusion. Oh, yes. Mm, yeah, how, how cool is that? That is super cool. The big news, I think the big science story that I liked this week, though, Jamie, was um, one involving a giant star. A giant star, okay. Yeah, I'm listening. A giant star. So back in 1295. Yeah, I remember it. You remember. uh, From history, obviously. Solid year. From your your, uh, GCSE history, you'll remember that Marco Polo was returning to Venice after visiting China. Mm. And uh, right at the same time, deep in the bowels of Betelgeuse or Betelgeuse, however you would like to say it, was bubbling up something quite amazing. And it was bubbling up. But just, just, just uh, when I say giant star, so Betelgeuse is a thousand times the size of the sun. So uh, if, if you plonked it in the middle of the solar system, its photosphere i.e. the sort of where the, the light actually shines from, uh, would stretch, engulf the Earth, probably engulf Mars, and maybe even go out as far as Jupiter. That's how big this thing is. Damn. So it's absolutely enormous. That is, that's big. But it's only 20 times the mass of the sun, so it's very, it's very gaseous. It's, it's far less dense than the sun. But it, it's 7,500 times brighter, so you'd have to have a pretty serious sun cream if you were to visit. It's kind of like me and you having a chat after you've been for one of your Birmingham curries because you're, you're full of gas, but you full are much brighter than me. <laughs> That I don't so. think that's true, Jamie. You have <laughs> you have a a marvelous brightness that uh, that shines that shines through that's shines through every episode of the podcast. Wow, I 199 mean, to date. Crazy, crazy things. Crazy times. Crazy wow. times. Uh, whoa, whoa. But anyway, Jamie, remember a few months ago we were talking about the great dimming of of Beetlejuice yes. or Betelgeuse. Beetlejuice, Beetlejuice, it was it's dimming, which Yes, yeah, so everyone was going, oh, my God, it might be about... She, she's about to blow! Backman, she's going to blow. Uh, so everyone was getting quite excited that we might see one of the most spectacular supernovas 
And um, and I mean spectacular. It would be mm. as bright as the moon for weeks and weeks, wow. and maybe even visible in the day. I mean, it would just be in, it would be absolutely fantastic. However, uh, a paper has come out this week: uh, spatially resolved ultraviolet spectroscopy of the great dimming of Betelgeuse. Available at your local stationery shop. W. H. Smiths will stock them. <laughs> but this is uh, scientists from all over the shop, Harvard, Smithsonian, the Leibniz Institute, uh, Massachusetts Institute of Technology, et cetera, et cetera. So lots of people just Leibniz, don't they make the um, those great chocolate Leibniz. biscuits? Yes. That, so while they're making chocolate biscuits, they they look into the, they're also um, looking they look, into supernovas. Yeah, yeah. yeah. looking into supernovas. Yeah, Jodrell Bank was involved yeah. in this as well. So this is a a major piece of um, a, a, a major astronomy paper, but it's trying to explain why there was this great dimming, right? Okay. And they used they used Hubble the Hubble Space Telescope. Now Hubble and Betelgeuse are almost like they're being designed for one another because Betelgeuse is close enough that Hubble can actually resolve the star, so it can actually make out surface features of the star. Okay, which is which is absolutely phenomenal, right? Wow. So it's uh, it, it's very very you know obviously Betelgeuse is very very big, but it is close enough, seven hundred and twenty five light years away. And of course, that's that 725 light years is why I mentioned Marco Polo because yes. this is was this was all happening through our telescopes at the beginning of this year, but was actually happening when Marco Polo was going back to Venice oh man, after nuts. visiting China. So uh, even though it's close, it's still a long way away, and the light has taken that long to reach us. But yeah, so Hubble was watching it, and they noticed that uh, before uh, this dimming. Uh, there was actually uh, the the photosphere was expanding, but expanding in a kind of weird place. Yeah, and Hubble spe- uh, the Hubble Space Telescope actually looked in the ultraviolet spectrum at this thing and was able to pick out using some uh, something known as the magnesium two line emission. It okay. was coming from the chromosphere. Uh, that there was a sort of bulge coming out of the southern hemisphere. So there was this big, very bright very big bright spot that's not normally there and it was not associated with the rotation of the star in its poles which is unusual so that so it often has these bright spots appearing but normally it's somehow related to the rotation of the star itself but this one wasn't and what they think has happened if they they were looking at the k line which is to do with iron and this magnesium two spectrum line, and they think that there was this pulse or acoustic shock within the star. Right. A, basically, a super hot plasma bubble bubbling up from within Betelgeuse. Damn. Uh, and and you've got to think of Betelgeuse as this giant circular spherical lung. So it's like a spherical lung that's breathing in and out. So unlike our star, Betelgeuse has this sort of four hundred day period where it's going in and out in and out so it's got something like 900 times the sun's radius but that that goes up and down quite considerably yeah uh either way uh 
go, uh, as it sort of breathes in and out over 400 days. So just over a year, it's, it's, it, it breathes in and out. It's got this cycle. But it appears that just as it was breathing out and becoming big, it's also having this bubble come up through it. And it's this coinciding of the bubble coming up, or this plasma bubble coming up, as the star expands at the same time that's pushed it out into space, pushed this load of plasma, hot plasma, out into space. And that hot plasma has, has turned into dust as it's got further away, God damn. and it was that, and it's that massive cloud of dust that has blocked the light and caused um, Betelgeuse to appear to dim. Oh, and so it's and and so it's it's this ultraviolet observation that they've made that's been able to sort of link this this bright spot, this you know this this large convective cell and mass ejection. And the and this dust cloud. I'm kind of gutted, was Matt, imaged. because we won't get to see mm. the uh, the supernova after all, or not well, yet, anyway. Well, I don't know because they actually don't. They don't say in this paper what the, they don't know what the cause of this big star burp was. Right. You know, it's it's. Um, it's in fact this is what uh, Andrea Dupre and she is a legend she's an octanarian she's 80 and she works at the Harvard Smithsonian she's the lead scientist on this at 80 can you believe it oh, and she, as she says with Hub with Hubble we see the material as it left the star's visible surface and moved out through the atmosphere before the dust formed that caused the star to appear to dim so That's beautiful. yeah beautiful was she on the line or was that you Yes, I, I I quickly recorded her. I phoned her up and said, "Can you you know sum this up for Just me?" Just give us a quote. Yeah. Hmm. So there's other stars that Brilliant. do a similar sort of. There's other sort of stars that do this similar dimming effect. Right. Our core Borealis phenomena. So they think it's similar to that. So these are AGB supergiants or post AGB supergiants. Um. So they're looking at that and, and the similarities between those kind of things. Um, but I tell you what's really frustrating now is that uh, Betelgeuse is, as we look at it from the Earth, is too close to the sun to observe. So they're, they're not able to observe it for a while, which, which kind of is a bit annoying. But they yeah. think they might be able to observe it using either stereo, which is these two spacecraft that are out observing the sun. So they might be able to observe um, Betelgeuse from there, or they might even be able to observe it from one of the Mars landers. Really? Yeah. Oh, that would be so, cool. Um, yeah, that, that's really cool, isn't it? So, um, you, you know, they can keep an eye on on battle gaze and see if we really are going to see a supernova. I don't think we are. I mean, the chances are quite low, but oh my God, if we do, it will be very, 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 very. exciting. Oh, I love so, it. Yes, I'm I, a big fan. I, yeah, so yes, a, a massive star burping and the burp turning into dust. I mean, I wish I knew what the process was of how this <laughs> yeah. giant plasma turned into dust, but it, it's like a weird cough, isn't it? Imagine hot burp that turns into into dust. Seems weird. But Do you know who we're we going to have to ask, Matthew? Who we're going to have to ask our guest on the 200th episode next week, 
Mr. Mm. Eric Berger. Mr. Eric Berger is definitely an expert on earth weather. I mean, he knows about he's going to have an answer weather. for us. If anyone's yeah. going to know, it's going to be. Yeah. So, yes, ne- next week, 200th episode, we're going to be joined by our Patreons and with Eric Berger. So, that I mean, what an awesome. exciting show. The 200th, insane. And, yeah, one of our favourite people. I mean, if not one of my favourite um, people ever on well, Twitter yeah. and outside of Twitter, Mr. Eric Berger. Yeah. Can't wait. Mr. Eric Berger himself. Wow. Yes, awesome guest. Um, so, Jamie, do you want to listen to th- this week's guest? Uh, Hell yeah. Actually, he's super awesome, classic. Uh, he's a person into space who's also a musician. What? Who would have th- thunk that, huh? My kind of guy. This is a space entrepreneur or a serial space entrepreneur. If, there, if only there was a, a word like for entrepreneur. Um, that began with an S. Sontrepreneur. Spontrepreneur. I don't know. But anyway, he's a serial space entrepreneur and he's written a book that is actually great. It really is everything that we talk about on the podcast. And it's called The Industry That Can Transform Humanity. Now we're talking. Is open for business by Robert C. Jacobson. Robert C. Jacobson. I don't think I've ever seen a book with as many um, sort of people from the industry saying how good it is. Glowing reviews. There's lots and lots and lots of glowing reviews. And... He's. uh, We're going to have a a podcast competition. So over this week, we're going to be. If you check out our Instagram and Twitter, there'll be a chance to win copies of the book. Get out. Uh, Yeah, big time. And I'm telling you, it is definitely a book worth owning. It is 100 worth owning. Have to get your greasy mitts on it. You'll have to go to our social media channels to find out how. I mean, don't believe us. Read the reviews. Yeah, read the reviews. So, yes. Um, do you want to hear, listen to my chat, Jamie? Yes, after our chat, please. we'll have some huge podcast news. OMG. Let's roll OMG. the tape. OMG. So you have to listen after the, after the interview because it's huge. It's huge, I tell you. Huge. <laughs> so here we go. It here we is go. The Interplanetary podcast putting the ace back into space i'm here with robert jacobson who has a new book out welcome to the show robert thank you matt great to be here today on the interplanetary podcast yes i've been uh, checking you guys out for uh, for a bit and uh, and i love what you're uh, what you've continued to create you've got a new book out can you tell uh, the listeners just a little bit about it because i actually think this is just about one of the most up the street of the Spodcats book possible. Give us a quick synopsis and then I'll dive in with some questions. I'm a, um, I guess you could call it an astropreneur and an investor in the space sector. And I wanted to distill some of my experiences from the past decade plus and kind of in some way I was, I was trying to solve my own problem was creating a guide as if it were 10 years ago, you know, Getting into the industry was there a guide, which there wasn't. So I kind of write in a way wrote that book for myself, but I'm really writing it to um, 
other investors and, and entrepreneurs, although it can be enjoyed by anybody, as a really insightful guide to this evolving industry. And I think some of the, um, the differences with maybe my book um, is that I wanted to not just share my own uh, research and analysis, but um, in a sense, go to the uh, experts in the industry, um, about over 100 in and around the industry that included industry leaders, other investors, and gather their insights um, into the economics and strategies for this industry. And I really wanted to make it a really, really easy read for people. So there was, um, there was a lot of uh, meticulous craft to the, to the pages of it, which I think Matt can probably um, um, attest to. <laughs> and um, a, a couple other sort of distinctive areas about just the formatting of, the, of even the, the book was I included a section on culture and I think culture is actually a really unique, uh, unique aspect of space, not just the culture of space, but of how popular culture and things like um, the arts and science fiction have influenced space and how space influences them. It's, it's, kind, of a, it's a kind of a virtuous um, cycle there. And, um, and there's a, a section that also included in the book on how to sustainably um, grow the industry. And I think... Um, Many times we always talk about, you know, growth just for growth's sake or, or there's just, we look at the, you know, um, you know the, the 360 billion U.S. dollar industry of, or the global space industry, although now they're saying it's even larger. I think a report came out yesterday that it's maybe even 400 plus uh, globally. Um, but I also wanted to um, go to some of the policy experts and say, look, if you kind of had a magic wand or if you're talking to poli uh, other, other government leaders, policy leaders, what are things we could do to, um, as a nation, as a nation and where I'm an American or, 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 or people in their respective countries to help grow uh, the space economy and their re uh, representative uh, communities? So yeah, there's there's quite a lot of well, we'll unpack each of those little things as we sure, go along. I, def sorry. I definitely want no, I definitely I think that's a really good synopsis of the book. Okay, it's I, I, did we actually say what it was called? A space is open for business. So oh yeah, I, I want to actually start with that actual title. Spa <sighs> space is open for business. So that term space is 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 hugely broad. So presumably there's lots of little little kind of uh, silos of space that we can talk about and uh, and I'm, I'm assuming that that all of them are starting to become open but but yeah what are the sort of main important areas that you're talking about when you actually are talking about space um yeah thank you and and, and the sub and the subtitle which i think is important is is the industry that can transform humanity um so space yes is a broad term and, and space has been a been a an idea that it colors our imagination and our dreams. And, you know, for thousands of years, we've, you know, we drew, we drew paintings in caves. We looked to the skies. We still do. Um, we just had a recent new comet visit us that was actually um, discovered by an amateur, uh, I think an amateur astronomer, which is pretty amazing. And in so many times in, in kind of our contemporary society and saying, 20th, 21st century, we'd think of space as purely as a place, which it is. It's a place for commerce. It's a place for exploration. Um, but it also enables inspiration. And I think that we can think of space, many times space is also a metaphor 
of like inner and outer space. And it connects with, I think, these times where we're in with the kind of this COVID times where we're being challenged on all sorts of uh, assumptions and what our own reality is. And, and, uh, and I've also been thinking about space, not just outer space, but inner space too, that, that, that space as an idea and as a place can potentially provide all sorts of things and it, and, it, and it can be personalized. So if you're say a painter and you know, you, you can person, you can do that. Whereas um, you're, if you're a, you know, hardcore technology entrepreneur, you might have a, a different relationship with it. So a lot of times it's about these relationships to, to the word and to what it means. And, and I think it's okay to have um, multiple definitions or meanings of it. And, 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 and a, a lot of the emphasis in the book is, probably is geared towards sort of the lower earth, uh, lower earth orbit part of the, um, of, of space being open for business. And that's that, you know, that sweet spot kind of like around where the, the space station up, you know, uh, and, and higher. Um, but, but essentially not where we have our geo, uh, geo communication satellites much further out, but a lot of the economic activity is going in lower earth orbit, which is fantastic. And I, and I do discuss, you know, how there's a lot of energy right now going towards the moon and a little bit on Mars, although at the, at the moment there's not the, um, there's not an, uh, an urgent economic case today saying that like why we have to do, to do something on Mars, but we, we need to go to Mars. We need to do all of it. But, but the economic rationale is, is a little more maybe difficult to, difficult to make. Well, why is it happening really? Why have we suddenly why, and like you mentioned this before we came on air, that, that there's a growing interest in space. Why is that happening? And why, why are we seeing this kind of what people call new space and, or space 2.0 or, or how, whatever you want to call it? And, and, and what are the things that it's impacting the most on? I think there was a recognizing by invest, in some people in the investment community that they started, well, first of all, they started saying, well, why are these um, high, super high net worth individuals um, like uh, Paul Allen, Sir Richard Branson, um, I mean, even Bill Gates invested in satellites in the, in the late 90s, but, but more contemporary Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk, why are they investing in space? It's not just that it's cool. There, there's, they've started realizing there's something else. And, they, and you start looking at what's going on in space. It was hi, a highly customized type of activity you know, government to government, government only working with maybe a few select large, um, uh, essentially, uh, government contractors. And it was a, a slow business, you know, you know, there was um, things happening on a very iterative rather than in, it was iteration versus innovation. The, the, the industry was actually very conservative and very cautious. It's not like um, somebody says, hey, I have a new satellite bus that does all, all this. And we have like this, you know, We've gone from, you know, the Pentium 3, we're going to put the Pentium 10 on there. That is not how the industry works. They're actually really slow and very risk adverse. So investors, I think, and some entrepreneurs are saying, hey, maybe this is, this is a little bit opportunistic, saying, look, there, there is this energy going. There are some things that we can disrupt. And it's kind of like you start poking going, oh, okay, it's launch right now. And I think launch is probably an area that's maybe a, a little bit, um, there's, there's probably enough launch capacity globally in terms of all the, 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 the startups that are, that are out there and other established companies. But then they start looking at the edges going, okay, well, what are, the, what, are the, what, are the, what are the rockets carrying? Okay, they're carrying satellites. And then people start looking at habitats and going, okay, what are you doing with those things? So 
there, there's, it's, it's, some people refer to it maybe as like, uh, they're looking at Moore's law opportunity in space. And I, I don't, I haven't seen the actual graph where it's the same type of exponentiality where like, um, of growth, but maybe, at, maybe you could make an argument that as the cost, the, the, the true cost to getting anything, any type of, you know, atoms of mass to space, uh, decreases that you, um, you, you will, you will be able to create so much more new value because essentially what you're having is like the, um, it's, uh, I use this compare with this analog to like in the nineties, uh, inf internet infrastructure and you needed companies like Cisco building their building essentially internet hardware. And then you had companies that were like, like such as Google that were relying on things like Cisco to build their applications. And then Google eventually kind of becomes its own bit of infrastructure and other companies start developing and, 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 and spinning off or technology, you know, swirls coming off of that. And I think that is what we're seeing. And so the, the low hanging fruit is initially was, you know, was launch early on. But I think a lot of that is kind of like, it's, 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 it's a very, uh, I use a blue ocean strategy. It's a very red ocean. It's very bloody and lots of competition. <laughs> there. It's not some place you want to jump in there today. And then there were um, these small sat um, uh, Earth observation constellations in the vein of, you know, Spire Global, um, Planet, and others. And now you're also now seeing data, essentially data services. And even some of those observation companies are even trying to, 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 to say, we're, we're no longer a space company, we're a data analytics company. <laughs> you know, so, so there's, it, it's, um, there's all sorts of, you know, micro movements within this new space evolution. And, and I, and, and I, and I think it's, um, and I think it's, it's great that this is all happening. And I even think that the failures of, uh, are, are something to be expected. So when, you know, companies go bankrupt and something happens, they're not all going to survive, let alone thrive. So it's just part of, part of this process. Um, you just want to make sure that if, you know, you're, in, you know, if you're an investor or entrepreneur, you can at least learn you know the, the bruises aren't so severe that you end up in a coma or dead <laughs> <laughs> yeah I, it's it's certainly yeah it's it's i mean i'd quite like to ask you what your what your thoughts were on on the uk government coming in and, and swooping up um one web as a as, <laughs> as an investment choice yeah so i haven't followed it super closely and, and backing up for for those maybe who don't know you know one web is uh was um, uh, a plan to send these a constellation of satellites and provide internet services to, they say it, it was like, um, th they've tried this before, essentially bringing internet to where places that are underserved, you know, Africa, maybe parts of Southeast Asia, rural parts of the US, could be rural parts of Canada, you could think Russia, places where like big open spaces where it's just too expensive to bring in fiber or, or other things. So it's in some ways it's a new category of space. It's a, a, a business to consumer category. And then you would probably also have um, commercial businesses that might say, Hey, I, we, we want some of that service service too. And there was a lot of capital investment that went in. I think it was about 2 billion plus us dollars and they still needed more, but I mean, it had investors like um, I think either R Richard Branson through one of his groups, cause he wanted, because Virgin orbit was going to be, um, was going to be flying 
or, 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 or transporting some of their satellites. Um, I think Coca-Cola. Uh, there are a lot of very interesting corporate investors in there because they saw at, in opening, at, providing internet access to new markets oh, can help create new markets. And there can be all sorts of debate, debate there. But essentially, they kind of ran out of money, and, and, I, and I don't really know why, but went into bankruptcy, and the courts allowed it to be essentially sold. And then um, uh, an Indian telecom group, and then the British government came in and, and purchased it. And I even saw a headline today that I think another, there were some other groups that are coming on to put some other, I don't know if it's investment or customer money, but there's additional funding coming through. So one thought is that maybe maybe this infrastructure was still too expensive for the um, non-government markets because this has happened with Iridium, Iridium, where they built Iridium. It worked, but they only had so many customers that would pay thousands of dollars for these headsets. It was like, I think they had like maybe 50,000 customers or so. It was just not enough. And it went bankrupt. And eventually people bought the assets on the cheap and they said, oh, now we can make it profitable because <laughs> other, other investors and creditors took it on the chin and they got their bumps and bruises. So I think the UK government will probably do okay acquiring these, these assets. It's debatable whether or not they should be in this business, why they want to be in the business. They'll probably, probably um, you know, they, pro- they probably got this at a, essentially at a, the assets at a discount. Yeah, I mean, is it encouraging to see governments though investing in essentially these kind of big new spacey kind of ventures? And and like you said, you're you're opening up new platforms, aren't you? That that things can grow off and and become new businesses themselves. If 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 a, is it right that governments come in and sort of like they built the railways or like they helped build the internet in the first place? that they're kind of keeping some of those things afloat. And so, therefore, is it encouraging to see that sort of thing? Or as an investor, are you kind of a bit scared that maybe it 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 kind of misbalances the market and kind of <laughs> shades the market somehow? Yeah, yeah, Matthew, it's a good point. I think that, that um, ha- you're essentially asking the government to pick winners and losers. And... Um, and that's, uh, you know, it used to be illegal in the United Kingdom with doing, I had a friend whose business was doing reverse directories and you, or he had directory and, and there were a lot of things that were, you know, illegal with using like the telephone directory and when it was becoming digitized and, um, and then eventually they changed the laws around that. So you can be, it, it sometimes timing is a big part of whether you're going to be successful. You look at, I'm going to go back to, um, and, and a lot of credit. I want to back up. A lot of credit should be given to Greg Weiler, though, who, who was who started OneWeb, and he had projects before this because he was initially building, I think, ground stations in his early part of his career in Africa, and he really believe, I think, believes in this as as a real thing. And then maybe later he saw the you know the economic opportunity, but I think he really does want to help a lot of people with this. So I think a lot of credit should be given to, to, to Greg in terms of um, his effort there uh, to the point of, of governments, you know, gover- it's sort of like government interve- intervention. It's, I'm not, I'm not sure what I think where, and I do talk about this in my book and more of the policy in a little bit of the policy area with, in, in towards the back after the main text is 
is I think what has been more successful is when governments use seed funding, small amounts of grants. And it's like maybe different than the United States. We have like these SBIR, these innovation grants to encourage small businesses. And some small businesses just try to survive on these type of grants. But I think if governments can use almost like work, maybe teaming up with groups that are like maybe incubators or something. So there is like a vetting process. They're not just handing out checks to any any company that comes in but um doing innovative things like maybe comp- competitive even competitive things like using competition i think is actually kind of a way you have some rules you guarantee there's going to be types of funding the u.s air force has been doing some of that when they're they've done some events where they said literally they are having credit cards authorized like at like a million bucks or something and they're they're literally charging in like doing contracts and things like that. I think it's removing the, the bureau for government to remove, remove the bureaucratic part so that you can allow more smaller opportunities. Cause I think where the thing that stifles, um, stifles the market is you've got say a big company, you know, old established company, and like, you know, and they want people to, uh, they want they they do governments they do government business works fine works great for them they have legions of people and processors and compliance people and attorneys to take care of all that bureaucratic work then you have you know maybe somebody that brought in a great idea you know maybe couple couple individuals and you know and they hire one other person and they say well we want this great contract we have the it, we have a thing that can be part of the solution set. But they look at the process and the time and the resources that it takes to even get in the game, and it, 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 it and they either spend that time trying to do that, and then they can't do other things. It becomes a choice, and that's why sometimes individual uh, smaller companies do go to the venture capital markets because venture capital might say no most of the time, but when they do say yes, it can be very it can the funding can happen very quickly. So I think government is, does, a, does not do a great job in picking winners and losers, but I think it will work on, on improving its processes and making itself more efficient, which is difficult because it's like a, um, a Dr. Pete Warden, the former um, head of NASA Ames, which is the NASA center in Silicon Valley, co- coined this term uh, that uh, called NASA self-licking ice cream cone, <laughs> that essentially, you know, it's about the organization perpetuating its own existence. It's not really optimizing for efficiency. And um, so I, I think if, if government wants to play in this, maybe at earlier stages, they might get burned more if they, but if they're seeding a bunch of opportunities and maybe there, maybe there needs to be studies on this and there probably are studies like when you, seed maybe in a market um, that maybe it's not necessarily a place that has an existing space infrastructure, you know, how many jobs are created? How long does that money truly last for until, until they need follow on funding? Um, I, I think government can put some things to help these smaller businesses along, but just going in and, and, and trying to, you know, uh, pick large infrastructure projects is I, 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 I have, I, I, I'm, I'm cautious. I feel very cautious about jumping into, into that if I were on, on the government side, but I'm, I'm not, a, you know, I have no, <laughs> no interest in <laughs> So, so, so yeah, in, in terms of, so 
that investing as an investor in space. So if 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 I thought to myself, right, I want to I want to go out into into looking at space investment, investing in space. What what's actually a really good thing to be looking at right now? What's the what's the kind of hot area? Um. Well, I, as a disclosure, I'm not making any, uh, you know, specific <laughs> recommendations, and yeah, one so should if, always <laughs> we get a bunch uh, of consult letters with from their <laughs> tax and legal, uh, uh, you know, um, advisors <laughs> around that. But there's a lot of activity in B to B, business to business, and business to government. And and I'll put a little caveat here that I find it kind of it's kind of funny because if you look back a few years ago. There are plenty of interviews and articles where um, investors and many investors came from being entrepreneurs, and they you know, many times these roles flip flop, being back on the back side uh, on 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 both sides. They'll describe as both sides of the table, and the, the they'll say if you're if you're too focused on like government money, government contracts, don't talk to us. But now you actually look at a, many of the larger newer style space companies and a lot of their um a lot of their business they have a lot of booking of business within government i'm not saying it's good or bad the government you know i think these companies do an excellent job servicing the government and this 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 actually helps helps the entire um space economy and but but it's it's kind of ironic when people at one point they were saying you know, if you're taking too much money from governments or you have too many contracts, we're not interested. But now there's this whole category called BG. But I think an interesting category is one I'm personally getting very excited about, and a newer one is B2C. And, and, and that's business to consumer. And as I said, it can include the, um, the uh, OneWeb. And, and, and now there was another announcement by um, Kaipur, which is Amazon's project, mm. which was approved by think the FCC and they've been uh, kind of on a, 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 you know, there's not a whole lot of information about them. And, um, and there's, you know, several, there's several other essentially data constellation pro, uh, project companies going, but I'm interested in, in like the services for consumer, but it's not just those data cons- services. I think soon we're going to start being able to see products potentially developed in space for use by people. There's, um, I think, the area around pharmaceutical and biotech, which ultimately, you know, to, is to be used by, you know, humans. Maybe maybe there'll be some veterinary uses. I don't know. But, <laughs> but there, um, I think, um, I, I've, I used to vacillate a lot on space tourism. Space tourism is many times people's gateway because they just were like, I want to go to space. So that's former space tourism. And I and I and I was personally kind of down and a little bit pessimistic on space tourism for a while because I had invested in it, time and money. It wasn't happening. It's uh, at least on the suborbital side, very slow, difficult. But I'm kind of coming around to my perspective and, and now looking at new optics and saying, look, let's not just think about it as purely a you know carrying but into space, what can we do in space that's creating value for people back on earth or, and just, just start thinking about the new use cases. Um, I'm actually working on entrepreneurial on, on, on a B to, on a, on a space theme and B to C business, a very large market. Um, and we have good use cases and we've, um, we've got a, a pilot project that's been, um, in space that's been completed. And so I'm, uh, I, that's an area I'm, I'm bullish on. Yeah, the space tourism thing. We sh- we should. 
I mean, I know we've been saying it for some time, but it does look as though like Virgin Galactic are sort of almost there, doesn't it? <laughs> it <laughs> does. Actually taking um, people and look, up. It's been a very long development path. I was at the very first Spaceship One flight to space on oh, wow. June 21st, 2004, and that really kind of changed almost everything for me. It's funny that I didn't go to the follow-on flights. I kind of felt like it was just so cool the first one. Like I didn't know how my it was like I hit my peak experience and I didn't want to like ruin it of like, you know, <laughs> it's been very slow. And after I think flight the first competition flight, um, that's when they put the Virgin Galactic sticker on and because essentially Branson was licensing the technology from Spaceship One. But I think the, ch the challenge, what I had learned, and I didn't know any of this when I first got in, that they were using these hybrid rocket engines, which, you know, they were stucking, essentially sticking like rubber foam from tires, ramming there as a fuel. And um, it works reasonably well for these air launch systems. But, the, but, but Virgin has learned that the system has not scaled. They thought, have Spaceship One, we'll build this bigger Spaceship Two. I mean, that was kind of like sort of mm. made sense. And they didn't really have the propulsion. What I had always dreamed of, and they didn't do this, is that they would team up with another company that was just a propulsion company, um, you know, and just just be done with it. Saying, "Look, hey, if this isn't working, cut bait and go with something that's that's actually working." And another thing that I think was proposed, and I don't know, I why this didn't happen was they could have commercialized Spaceship One. They could have just essentially continue to do some flights, you know, after the first three flights with it to space, uh, essentially Paul Allen wanted it in a museum as a tax write-off. And so he, he took as a tax write-off, but you know, he could have, they could have continued to fly this taking, you know, take a passenger on there is going to pay you, you know, I don't know, you know, pick a number. I'm sure there would have been in just to continue to even just to prove that say, Hey, there's a market, even if it's small and that we're not going to kill somebody or injure somebody and then, you know, figure this out. But I think there was so much enthusiasm that like, we need to do this in, 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 in a bigger way. And you look at the, you go back in time and you can go to like the internet archive and look at the Wayback machine. And this proves it at look at those press releases where they were saying, you know, by 2007, we're going to be flying 2008. And they kept on pushing up like a year and, and that hasn't happened. And, <laughs> and um, so I have, and I, I have a sense that maybe, you know, maybe, um, you know, Sir Richard and his, maybe some of, maybe him and his advisors did not really know early on, maybe the, the state of the technology, you know, this, the true state of the technology and, 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 and that how long a potential um, hardware development program can really take. And I imagine he, he's disappointed because he wants this to be a big part of his legacy. There's, there's no doubt um, but it's a struggle because they still kind of have this beautiful looking machine. It glides. I know they want to do a powered flight soon from New Mexico, but I, 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 I question like what the turnaround time between flights are going to be. There's, there's a lot of things about the, you know, operational part of the, the business. And, um, you know, they, now it's a public company and people can trade the stock. So that kind of has its own its own sort of um, psychology around that. And I almost look at that as like the, the stock and the actual business as being in some ways too related, but different things. Yeah, that is, that, that is an interesting point. I mean, 
it, the, the book is very much very much in the vein from what I've read so far in, in the fact that you obviously want space to happen as a as a as a big thing and you want it to happen it it seems almost for the good of mankind in terms of you want to see space opening up because it's really the last kind of economic place we can go to to sort of generate wealth and 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 prosperity i i guess um with that in mind what do you see are the sort of roadblocks in the way and what do you see as the way that 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 people voting for governments or or people just in their own home can kind of change attitudes to try and to try and push those barriers out of the way yeah um I think that the sector sometimes has a difficult time telling the story of space. We have these amazing people stories when they make it, whenever there's a new documentary on, let's say Hubble, there's a new one from the BBC that came out, I think in April or May, it's excellent. And I can't think of the title, but the BBC did it. So it should be easy to find. And that's a 30 year old instrument. (laughs) It, but, and, and I thought that it was like, Oh, I thought I knew everything about Hubble. And they put up this new, you know, this new um, new documentary with with new photos. Just blew my mom. I just my wife and I watch it. Just just like, wow, you know. And I and I think the storytelling aspect because humanity we're social creatures and we're all about stories. And I think we need to improve the story about space. You know, maybe the first part of uh, or the or maybe the second half of the twentieth century in the space story was about the Cold War and space and. And, and, and space is, does a beautiful thing where it can inspire competitive instincts in a great way, but also allows for cooper- cooperation. And I think as one of your previous guests, my friend Rod Pyle has talked about like coopetition, mm. and, um, and which is kind of, uh, or people sometimes say frenemy, having frenemies, <laughs> you know, both like your friend and you're also kind of competing with them. I think not so much an enemy, but now we, we've got this competitive process going on with commerciality and they're competing for contracts and they're competing against each other, which is, which is good. We're sort of still as I think as a species, as a civilization, still in the place where we're competing is kind of, it's ingrained as kind of part of us. We had, there's still a lot of us sometimes deal with scarcity mentality. It's like, um, you know, and, and, and there is finite resources on earth. However, in space, or at least in the solar system, it is not infinite resources. And that's one thing we, you know, people from the space sector and many advocates will talk, talk, talk about the unlimited resources space. There are only maybe unlimited resources to some extent when you talk, talk about the universe, but when our own, but we need to frame it where we're first of all thinking of ourselves as residents of the solar system, not just on planet earth, a spaceship, which we are, we are passengers on spaceship earth, which we need to do a much better job caring for, and preserving, keeping it the blue planet green, as my friend Jeff Grayson would like to say, in a spaceship that's traveling through the solar system and we are visitors and we should be able to explore and improperly use. And there's a great paper that I referenced in my book um, by, uh, I think he's essentially an astrophysicist out of Harvard named um, Martin uh, Martin Elvis. And him and his co-authors basically looked at a few sort of key industrial um, ores. They took like iron and say, let's measure, let's measure how much ore 
is there in the solar system. And if we're at a continual, let's look at like our, let's look at growth rates over the past hundred years. And if we continue on the growth rate, how long would it be until we used up all the ore? These are iron ore. Good question to have. I mean, uh, and they, they, they essentially come back and say, look, if we continue on like our current growth rate, we could kind of like use everything up in the solar system in like, I think it's like 300 years. What? I don't remember the number. I mean, <laughs> if, because, because what they're taking into account is the, 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 the way technology is, the exponential growth of technology and, and, and some of our, electro- and our needs in our electronics for use of um, rare earth elements. So they essentially say that, look, we need to start planning now the smart use and actually set aside, it's like, it's like set aside the majority of the solar system as wilderness. The balance of it we use for materials and industrialization, which will be plenty. And as, to, as humanity grows and evolves, we'll get, we'll, we'll get better optimization of those, those, of those precious materials. And, um, and essentially, it, it, it allows us so that when we become interstellar, we, we have that opportunity. We don't just use it all up. And I, so, so back to the kind of the book, I am totally biased for I want us to be a spacefaring civilization. And I talk about the Kardashev scale that I think that we need to be mandating amongst, it's, it's like ourselves and, and governments need to almost put as a mandate and say, hey, look. We want to grow from being a type zero civilization to a type one. doesn't matter how long it takes, but the fact that this is something we're going to do, put that, you know, put that in, in some type of, uh, formalize that, you know, just by putting it out there, it'll start putting it in people's minds. And that will help us thinking if we know where we want to be, if we know that we want to be in the solar system, interstellar, we can then as a civilization, individuals start to build it backwards and know going, okay, if this is, we know where we're, where we're going, part of our journey, then what are the things that we have to do? We know we need to figure out, can we even reproduce off planet? Can we, um, uh, we need advanced propulsion way better than current chemical rockets. So then we can start to at least reverse engineer. And, 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 when, we, and when we go through this process, we're going to develop tools and techniques and things that are going to benefit us here on earth because the conversation for the near term definitely has to include how does it benefit us here on earth because many people like like you know jeff bezos is a big believer in jerry o'neill who wanted to see o'neill colonies essentially having these large structures in free space where o'neill was envisioning thousands of people and i think bezos envisions trillions of people in the solar system bezos wants a million people on Mars at the end of the century. I'm somewhere in between there. I think the idea is we, um, we get, if, let's just say we have 8 billion people on the planet right now. I think we should, uh, you know, have 5 billion people in the solar system. And it's, it's been measured that about three, that earth can, can sustain optimally about three, uh, 3 billion people. And I'll re- recommend people check out a book called um, a planet of 3 billion by Dr. Christopher Tucker. Who was uh, he? Was the I think the recent head of the United States American Geographer Union, something like that. He's a uh, academic and entrepreneur. I think he was an early advisor at Planet. Very aware of, 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 of what's going on with space, and and um, I think we have to sh- essentially going back to your original question. It's like getting back to the story. What are the benefits of us here on Earth 
and in space. And it's complex, but there are, there are, the, there are many tangible and intangible benefits that we get right now. We're going to be getting in the near future from space-derived assets. And there are benefits as we go out. And it's, it's just not, I think it's like such a big, big clunky thing. It doesn't get articulated sometimes super well. I, I describe in my book, I have a, a term that I coined that people are free to use called R-O-Triple-I. Um, and that's return on um, an investment, innovation, inspiration. And that's one of the things that space can do. Um, you know, you have the financial monetary uh, return, uh, innovation, and, and, and inspiration. I hope I, you know, took your <laughs> addressed most of your points points now, in that question. There, there was two awesome points in there, and and because I. I'm really into this idea at the moment of of having destinations of of that that humans need to tell ourselves here's a destination that we want to go to now we can draw a map there and but it seems we're just always too busy firefighting that we never actually decide where we want to go and I think I, I think it's a really good point with space if we if yeah if you just said we want to get to a type 1 civilization just something as simple as that i'd never really thought about that as being a kind of destination but it works really well the other point that i thought was brilliant is i've been sitting here thinking obviously and i think a lot of people are worried one of the things you're obviously the old um, fermi paradox and the great filter i often think that maybe the great filter is that you can never have enough resources to leave your planet successfully because the planet just can't sustain uh to to that level but now you've got me worried thinking oh well maybe it's not the planet maybe it's the solar system bit that you can you can <laughs> rattle through all your resources in the solar system and nowhere near get to being interstellar because interstellar distances are just insane <laughs> there, there's true concern about that we could actually do a really great job of settling and having people and robots living in perfect harmony in the solar system. And then when we're, when we're kind of ready for inter human interstellar flight, we don't have the, enough resources. And that would just be, that would be, that would be a, tr that would be just such a tragedy. Uh, yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> I just want, it's a tragedy. I've not thought before. I'm going to have a sleepless night now. Oh no. <laughs> but, but I, but, but there are those, I was on a, a call with someone who, um, uh, I, I won't name them, but they are a, they're, they work at NASA. And he was very hopeful that now hope, hope doesn't mean anything The hope is, doesn't mean anything. It has no worth in that sort of way. It's just an opinion. But he said, from what he is saying, he believes that there is going to be technology essentially maybe even coming from, he didn't say this, but he was almost applying like new discoveries from physics that might be, you know, potentially around the corner, maybe like say a generation that could open up things like interstellar and basically advanced propulsion. Because unless we're, I mean, we should work on life extension. We should work on, we could work on all these parallel issues. Don't make any assumption that any one thing is going to be our, our silver bullet. But, um, but the idea of, you know, freezing embryos or just downloading us into a computer and shipping us off on a little um, uh, spacecraft on a laser for 10,000 years. And, you know, these things I'm going, okay, they're novel. They might have some pilot projects, but I don't see that as being the way to, to, um, 
like kind of truly expand our civilization. And amongst all these incredible challenges, and it's great that there are, you know, um, researchers looking to that, the near-term stuff like those who really want to go to Mars or are inspired by Mars or the moon, it's great that we have this, this energy and that's creating a new story and inspiring people to do all sorts of initiatives here, here on Earth. And I think that's, that's fantastic. And, and look, despite all the, the, the international, some of the uh, you know, international issues, let's say take Russia and the United States as an example, they're still cooperating with the International Space Station. We forget that as it flies overhead, that there is a multinational, you know, for you know, those who are politically correct, multi-gender, racial. We have a very diverse group of people that work together, live together, poop together, may I say that. They're in a very mm. small enclosure, and they come back changed people. Sometimes their DNA has actually changed, but they are actually... You know, they've have experienced the overview effect. They've done science. They've talked to kids. They, don't, they probably don't even know how many lives that they've touched. You know, what child decides to go into a, um, a certain field because of something that they saw from an astronaut. So I think having this human presence in lower Earth, per permanent presence in, in lower Earth orbit is so incredibly important and continues us to teach us how to just, you know, at least attempt to behave like maybe proper humans with each other. Like it's sort of the idea, it's sort of almost the idealization, like going, Hey, we can cooperate in space. Then maybe we can get through this because, you know, it's kind of a, a proverbial poop storm here on, on earth on how, you know, you know, you know, that the, the heads of state kind of shake, rattle their swords, or they say, no, you know, you can't do um, because of technology transfers. You can't cooperate with these scientists. So, I think space. There's a, a lot of a lot of groups that they try to find other ways to cooperate. Working on the space station is one. I mean, I, I mean, there was even I think a little bit of experimentation between China, uh, a university in China, and the United States, um, spearheaded through through nanoracks. It was just like a relatively minor, I think, experiment that took a lot of permissions that that nanoracks, a U.S. based company, had to get done but it proved that it can be done. So I think we should just not be so open and shut about, you know, how we um, maybe don't cooperate on earth, but actually space is great representation and maybe a model that um, uh, groups that are looking for maybe how to create uh, maybe peace amongst um, in conflict zones or things. I think there's just a lot that we can even, we could learn there. Yeah, things going even back to the Apollo-Soyuz missions, they were considered very groundbreaking in, in thawing the, the Cold War, as it were. Is thawing or heating up the cold? I don't know. Yeah, but yeah. <laughs> well, basically just that they were, you know, they were, they were doing something together and it was like, there was um, advanced technology available. Like, I, I would like to actually hear, I've never really heard how in those early days with the Soyuz programs, weren't they ever concerned about the... You know the Soviets stealing U.S. stuff, or vice versa. I mean, they had to do things like docking, and there were, there were all these things that they kind of, that they probably had to share some type of intellectual property so they didn't kill each other yeah. you know, or kill the, the respective astronauts and cosm cosmonauts. Yeah, well, I, th I think the same thing with things like the the Europeanized Soyuz launches out of out of. Out of Karoo, you'd think that they'd be. <laughs> it's quite <laughs> yeah. hard for them to sort of hide. 
hide the 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 the, the like you said the intellectual property but i guess i guess that that that's it isn't it you you, you have to ha- you have to have cooperation i think space is so big it's good that you have to have international cooperation it's a little bit worrying the the sort of noises out of out of i guess uh Rogozin. <laughs> not particularly pleased with the Artemis program and teaming up with the Chinese and things like that. So it, it's an interesting one. But like you said, they're still working really closely on the ISS. And I do remember being at some uh, at, at, at a war memorial event quite recently here in the UK. And, and it was late at night and they were showing videos of the trenches and stuff like that. And, and the ISS actually flew over. And I was actually thinking to myself, there's a Russian, a German and a couple of Americans on board. <laughs> it's actually incredible. I mean, it was like one of those things of like, where you couldn't make it up if you told the people who were in those battlefields like 70 years before, oh, by the way, they'd be doing something like that. Yeah, and it's, um, yeah, exactly. And that people that you're saying, look, this is your mortal enemy. You have to kill this person and now you're cooperating with them. It's, uh, so I think space has a lot of representational models that we can probably learn from, maybe maybe de-escalating conflicts. And I think it's a beautiful thing what we've seen right now. We've got three um, three missions to Mars. And um, so Mars is going to get a little bit crowded with some new robotic activity, which is great. And I'm thinking about, it's, I'm really, I'm, I'm increasingly impressed with uh, United Arab Emirates and they're making, I mean, they've had an interest in space for a while and they keep investing and reinvesting in their, in this, in this mission, they made a big point that it should be an inspirational part of the point. And they're trying to reach out to um, uh, people and culture outside of their own borders. And I think that's, um, that's, that's, that's really, uh, I think that's, that's very useful. Yeah. Is there, um, are you ever concerned by because we right at the beginning of the year we did we we had uh, a chap called Morabar Jaron who was talking about how how crowded low earth orbit is getting and and how seriously in need of proper legislation and 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 actually thinking about that this is a finite resource and and really we're thinking too much about investment and not enough about sustainability in that sense. Does that worry? Does the kind of sustainability, because what you don't want to do is shoot yourself in the foot before you've even started, right? No, true. And it's true. I mean, debris is, um, if we just take, if we just take the debris issue, um, yeah, it's challenging. We haven't had like the, um, the, oh my gosh, this is the, this is the accident that caused the, the world to really take action because as you alluded to uh, earlier, Matthew, is that humanity tends to be humanity tends to be very reactive than proactive on issues, you know, storms, pandemics, and our civilization and governments can do a much better job at sort of like planning, you know, things, uh, or at least, you know, and, and having better discussion. I think some of the the my sense is that some of just the current forms of discussion don't are not necessarily keeping up with the pace that the investment and the commerciality of all this is going. So take like the United Nations; they have these councils and they they have these meetings. It sounds very impressive and things can be done, but it's all kind of very slow and sometimes not as practical. And business people and entrepreneurs are kind of like practical looking, solving issues, and sometimes they they go really fast on their effort and then something's 
not saying that they don't care about debris or, 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 or being smart custodians of using lower earth orbit, but they just want to go, they just want to go fast. But we do have like some debris issues. So like uh, um, I'm reading here that you know, we have approximately 23,000 pieces of large orbital debris, larger than 10 centimeters, and approximately 500,000 pieces of debris between one centimeter and 10 centimeters. And, and then this is, this is kind of crazy, 100 million pieces of debris smaller than a centimeter. But when you have things moving at, you know, 35-ish <laughs> thousand miles, uh, I mean, kilometers per hour, that, uh, you know, anything that would hit you or something else can, can inflict um, damage. Um, so I think there needs to be proper dressing, you know, I, you know a personal because that all new satellites should have a real, you know, if they're a lower Earth orbit satellite, they should have a way they're either going to be, um, uh, you know, burned up in the atmosphere or uh, recycled. They should have just a, a more robust end of life plan that maybe, and um, uh, we should be dealing with these things. But unfortunately, the commercial side is still kind of slow on debris because there's not a lot of economic use cases. There's a few companies that are doing tracking and there's some that are say they're, they're that are involved with orbital debris they might be today doing that but there's no customer yet i don't think there's a government that'll sign up and say hey we're gonna pay to clean up someone else they'll say it's someone else's mess or how do we know that that paint chip came from ours mm. um right yeah. um <laughs> well presumably it's also a little bit awkward if if you want to go clear up a russian satellite you're not allowed to touch it even though it might be dangerous, right? Yeah, 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 exactly. Exactly. So, so I think we're, um, I think we have need to be more proactive in these discussions about, like, you know, how how do we, you know, what is the minimum amount of debris we're comfortable with? It seems like right now it's just about kind of growing the amount of debris. There hasn't there hmm. hasn't been a decide a, a globally decided threshold. No. Uh, I mean, presumably there's not be. I mean, the analog for that would presumably be, say, an oil company. The oil companies haven't really been asked to pay, you know, clear up the clear up the mess of 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 the downside of the oil industry. Yeah, that's a great point. Externalized, they call it externalized costs. You know, when a, a factory or a power plant. Um, creates whatever it's creating whether it's energy or a product you know this you can't just keep everything in the factory the emissions have to go somewhere and it's usually into a waterway there's a weight there's a waste stream and and until we better again as a civilization I think part of this is factoring in economic you know these externalized costs um, you know now we have the tools to measure and we sort of can say gosh so many people, get affected by, um, they get lung cancer, they get asthma in, 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 in urban environments. Um, so we're now getting a better job at measuring. And space has been tremendously helpful because we use satellites to measure all sorts of things into how the planet is changing. So we need these, these ob observation systems. But now we also need to also start figuring out as a civilization, how do we better control these. Buckminster Fuller, who was the thought leader, uh, architect, designer, had, you know, coined the term spaceship earth. You know, had that, he created that phrase where he said, you know, there's like no, no pollution. It's just like an underutilized resource, which it is, it was a paradigm shift in thinking, but until, but right now when I, if I start my petrol based internal combustion car, 
I can't just stick something on there and capture things that come out of the tailpipe and say, oh, I'm going to take that to like the bank and, 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 Cash and turn in. that into some, some pounds. <laughs> I've, or I've got some carbon monoxide. Do you want to buy it off me? <laughs> exactly. Um, so I think we're at this transition point where all where these things are being addressed. I just think they need to happen faster because we have the um, the climate change issues and 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 governments change every few years and 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 liberal democracies and I think space has to become used to the idea of resiliency to weather through these things like you know if for several years in the term of the, the, the spending is, is, is less, you know, on space, just developing re- resiliency. And I think it's a theme maybe that just us as individuals can learn. You know, if we're dealing with a COVID situation, uh, you know, COVID pandemic type of situation, what can we do to maybe we can learn from even astronauts who've been in isolated environments to better deal with our own personal forms of resiliency? You know, it's mental, mental health, physical health is... It, it, you know, it is helpful for us to be pro- productive, to do these things that we want to do to help us evolve and then contribute to, you know, society. So I think there's a, a lot of layers there. Yeah. So if I was going to sum up the book from, from what I've heard, it's, it's kind of, there's a little bit of the roadmap to how to get to a type one civilization and, and, and how you think it's panning out so far. Is that is that a fair assessment? I, I think I think there's 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 definitely some of that backed with some of the current and recent activity to sort of show that this is this is not all just um, uh, fantasy or or, or, or or a fiction story, and also to inspire even those who pick up who say, well, look, I I'm, person say I'm not a venture capitalist, you know, I don't want to build a, a space station, but I really love space. There are also ways that I talk about how it interlocks, and this is kind of the, the cultural element of how um, you know one can get in, involved or they can do new things. I'll, I'll, uh, I'll briefly touch on a, a, a newer business that I don't I don't think I'd mention in my book, but um, I know one of the founders of it. There's there was a company called Space VR, and they initially wanted to create. I think they were initially wanting to put either cameras inside. They wanted to put cameras uh, VR cameras for virtual reality on the international space station. And then I think they kind of pivoted to doing a free flying satellite to give people the idea of this overview effect. Great concept, put on VR goggles in here on earth, feel like you're going to space and they've trans and they've further pivoted. And I really like this, this pivot is that they have built the world's, I think it's the world's first or uh, uh, it's a waterproof VR headset. Now why waterproof? Well, there's a t- there's an idea that's been around since I think the late '60s uh, called floating flotation tanks, which that can go down the rabbit hole of um, <laughs> of, of of some of the early research that was done there. And if people don't know about flotation tanks, or it's sometimes called isolation tanks, and I've done some floating myself, and I think it's a marvelous activity, but not it's not for everyone. And they are now putting people inside these flotation tanks. So you're in a, think of it as a, as a ba- bigger bathtub. It's enclosed. So it's completely dark and you wear earplugs. So you're trying to get most of the sound out unless you might have some tinnitus or, you know, which, you know, a little bit, a little bit of guests who've been around loud music have been around. Oh yeah. Big time. <laughs> and you put on some earplugs and the water's warm to just about your body temperature. And they put in a whole lot of salts 
and you start to, so when you, you, you climb into this thing, it's a little bit slimy, but essentially you're floating on top of this. And when you close your eyes, once you get relaxed, the idea is almost recreating and like, like being inside the womb again and you're weightless. And when you kind of zone out or fall asleep, you can fall asleep and not drown in these things. You start to feel like you're weightless. You don't feel the, the, you don't feel the edges of your fingertips or your legs or your torso. It's a really marvelous feeling. So they have now this idea you put the VR headset on and you're in, and I don't know what the visual footage they're using, they're currently using, but I think they're now either, I don't know if it's licensing or franchising, but they already have these, I think, at flotation centers around the world. And this can be done solo. So you could probably do this safely in a, in a pandemic type of situation. And I think you can essentially go to space VR. I don't mean I'm giving them like good plug here, but but it's a way for that for for humans now for a very affordable um, price to maybe try to re-experience what these astronauts <clears throat> have felt by seeing the Earth from space with you know, no no borders and and, and, and see, seeing the Earth as it is. I've got I've got a couple of frivolous questions that we always wrap up our um, our interviews with, and one of them is if you were to bring back a dead hero, uh, someone that's long past, and 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 to bring them back and say, look what we've done so far. Look look at look at how incredible space is, or or how incredible modern science and 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 the world is. Who who would you bring back? Who who would be the person you go? Yeah, they, they'd like they'd dig this. I think it has someone that was talking about this person just, just a few days ago um, with uh, my wife. Different, it was a slightly different question, but it was Benjamin Franklin. Yeah. Ah, yeah. He, he was this, I mean, sometimes an overused word renaissance person, but he had so many interests and accomplished so much. And if he had the tools of digital and like space, I mean... He, who knows what he would have he, he would have enabled or or started yeah he's yeah he's he's he great. probably would have had a podcast he would have had podcasts <laughs> oh, with de- you he, he you definitely know? would you know what one of my, my one of my favorite things of benjamin franklin funny i i gave jamie who's a jamie franklin i gave him benjamin franklin's um bio, uh, autobiography uh, because I just thought it was so amazing the bit where he he moves to a new town and sets up this thing called a junta which is this this idea of a sort of debating club where you're not allowed to be emotionally attached to the thing that you're debating. I just think that the world could really do with like little junter spaces now where people could sandbox their ideas and talk about things and, and have other influence. And he did it so he could meet all the influential people. I think it was in Philadelphia that he did this. And he did it so he could meet all the, the really influential people and, and, and get in with them and learn as much as possible. And he's really great. Yeah, yeah, I love Benjamin Franklin. Yeah, I think, I think what you're, you're speaking to is we've been in a time where I think we're forgetting where, I mean, humans are emotional, but we're also able to cooperate. And it's great that we can express ourselves and our feelings, but we have this rare ability to cooperate. And a lot of other um, species don't have that ability to negotiate and cooperate. And I think we really need to, it would be helpful if we ourselves before, you know, you know, I'll see this before we send that, you know, that uh, late night email or, or whatever it is, just, just say, say, am I being rational or, or not, you know, because so many times, 
especially I think in this heightened sense of this uh, pandemic, it's very easy to get in an irrational state and, and, and sometimes makes us do things that we, we regret. Yeah, well, I mean, Twitter and Facebook are certainly, certainly really, really, because they're the kind of, they're even easier than the late night email, aren't they, to just rant yeah. and, and, and yeah, people, true. I think you just, lose your mind on those platforms it's 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 bizarre yeah but bring back benjamin franklin i i don't think he'd be impressed by facebook <laughs> well <laughs> you know it, you know there's a tool that i use on facebook it's the uh, facebook like i call it uh it's called um it's like facebook it oh it's called oh it's the extension <laughs> called kill newsfeed and it's got like a cross that goes through facebook and when you run it on your uh on i think it runs on most of the browsers when you open up Facebook, essentially the nothing is there except like if you want to post something, everything else is blank. Ah, yes. And it's kind of beautiful because it makes you forced to think about going like, oh, what is my friend Matthew doing today or, or some yeah. what's going on? It's like it kind of makes you think before you do on Facebook. And you don't see the news feed. <laughs> oh, man. Do I, I need that in my life. Well, that that's that's the third revelation there. <laughs> <laughs> right kill, so, kill newsfeed kill, kill newsfeed news feed. I'm, I'm it'll, on that. it'll actually you, you'll I, I found when i installed it it increased my happiness oh man it must do it must do i, I the depressing thing is I, I have to use facebook for work and i have to use facebook for the podcast and and i get sucked into it i'm 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 an awful per, i'm an awful person and i get sucked, sucked into facebook so easily you're just human you're just know, human I, I, so I, it's it's just we're all, we've all been down there and <laughs> and we should all still support and like and and, and do all these things and comment but just recognize that like when we're posting things they, it's just we're just posting opinions and we all have opinions yeah well, that, and it's okay well exactly <laughs> it, it, unfortunately yeah the opinions get attached to the people i think that that because benjamin franklin was very good at that of 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 splitting opinion up from the person saying it and and that that's what i found really inspirational about him that's what that's why i really liked him i've got the final and, final frivolous sure. question because we we spent about, <laughs> about half an hour before we started recording the interview talking about music so hopefully you'll be able to because <laughs> it sounds like you're an exceptionally you. uh exceptionally talented musician and we were saying you know this is this is quite common in space people but it sounds like you're you know you know you know, you know what you, you know your onions so have you got a we, we've got a space playlist where we've got lots and lots of songs relating to space and you're not allowed to have david bowie because it's obviously too too obvious but have you got a space related song that uh, that could well hopefully give the optimism about space uh, uh, or is uh, what's your favorite space related song no bowie oh <laughs> space related song can, can it be is it possible it could be um instrumental yeah i oh, know absolutely we got we got a bunch of instrumental oh, stuff on there. i mean this is yeah, I mean, for me, and he's a, he's a, he's a personal friend, but he's also just, I mean, I, I discovered his music before I, I got to know him as a person, but the music of Ben Maunder, um, and I, first album I would s suggest for those who are looking for something kind of space qualities, it's called Excavation. I think it's from 2000 or 2001, um, and I'll put the little, uh, uh, maybe a little sub text or the, the footnote is his very first album is called flux which is an incredible recording but it's definitely not for uh most listeners but it's a, it's an incredible recording and um 
but excavation and you hear the first track, I think what, what is the, um, I'm almost going to look at here in real time because it is just such a, a beautiful, the opening track, it's just fantastic. And when you hear it, it's, he, he, he collaborates also a lot with a, um, a vocalist named Theo Blackman, whose own music is, is actually, um, can be very otherworldly. And they, they've done solo albums separately and together. They have a duo and do stuff ensemble work. And, and their music is sometimes beyond category. And the first, this composition that I just love the opening of when they, they do a fade in, it's, um, and it's a, a solo composition when you hear it and, you, and it was recorded, I think, live, you'll go, how did he do this? It's called Mistral. Um, and that's M-I-S-T-R-A-L by, uh, on the album Excavation by Ben Maunder. And it is, um, in the, and it's the opening track. And then the final track on the album is a, a beautiful rendition of You Are My Sunshine. And I don't, is the, you, is the song You Are My Sunshine, is it popular in UK? Uh, yeah, just yeah, as well? yeah, 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 no, it, I, I, I think all US songs make it popular oh. in the UK. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> but he does a really, really heartfelt rendition of You Are My Sunshine is, is the last one. And I think, Sunshine, in some ways, is connected with space because, I mean, gosh, you know, we have like mothers singing, so many times mothers sing this song or to, to, to this song about sun. And we are like probably all of us, including the earth, are probably from, we're made of stardust, as like, you know, people like, think like Carl Sagan said. So, you know, we, we have all these references. Sometimes we don't even think about it indirectly to, to, to space, you know, like, mm. you are my sunshine. Like, okay, what does it think about? Like, like it's kind of heavy. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah, it's 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 so true. I've noticed that the second song on the on the album's got a great name, Lu- Lucius Pangolin. How about that? That's. I uh, think he. I think um, he he I predicted think... uh, predicted COVID nineteen. <laughs> no, I think I think I heard a story that with some of his titles, he likes to just go into like either medical dictionaries or just dictionaries. <laughs> And find really cool sounding words, some something like that. Um, um, uh, w- w- I, I l- recently learned that window pane, which I did not know, I've heard the piece for a long time, was actually a reference to LSD. Did not know that. <laughs> Apparently, there was like this way of putting LSD into your eyes, which I've not done LSD. <laughs> I don't know, but uh, but apparently, there's this thing about how they would use droppers and, and put, put it into your eyes. So. Going down the uh, cultural um, <laughs> rabbit hole here. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I wonder if uh, Pete Green used to do that, and uh, he, he passed away this week. Oh yeah, Pete Green, <laughs> from the musician from Fleetwood Mac. Exactly but right. Matt, I, I really appreciated being able to uh, to sp- really enjoyed speaking with you today. No, no, absolutely, absolutely, my pleasure. And I'm going to c- carry on working my way through this book. It really is. I have to say, it's extremely dense uh, information-wise. When you were saying it was simple, it, it's it's, I think it's it's really well written and and uh, but but it's so dense and you've and you've got so many really really cool people, I noticed helping you out on it and and I, I, it's really good to see some of the names like Dennis Wingo and people like that appearing in in various. Yeah, parts my good of it. buddy Dennis, I love Dennis. Uh, we've had, uh, yeah, Dennis is, is a good friend. Look, the book took a number of years. To, to sort of craft and there was a bulk of it which was sort of written maybe say in a in a, in a sort of two separate pieces I, I kind of wrote a manuscript and then in parallel I interviewed a bunch of people and then I took 
highlights of those bits from the people and kind of started asserting them into a big lumpy manuscript. And that's where my fantastic editor came in. And we started shaping this to make it really, really um, a good read, dense, but a good, a very good read. And I'm, I'm taking some of those long form interviews that I did with people. Uh, some of them were quite long and I'm making, making all sorts of bonus content available for, for, for people. So just some of it much free uh, for those who or um, haven't purchased the book. So there's a website for the book called spacesopenforbusiness.com and, and we're offering all sorts of um, bonus material there. People can sign up there and would love to uh, keep it um, really friendly, informative, and fun there. So I would love to uh, continue to engage with people and, uh, and we'll, we'll find some way to even Get yeah. some copies of the book to some readers. <laughs> yeah. So, you, yeah. so stay tuned to, with Matt. You oh, know, yeah, no, absolutely. Because we're, 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 we're going to make some <laughs> copies of the book available to the Interplanetary Podcast readers. We'd love to do that as a, as a, as a thank you to, to Matt and okay. Jamie for their service. Cool. Well, well, we'll definitely come up with a competition. We'll, we'll, we'll work out how we do it because it'll be, yeah, that's really, yeah. really, really cool. Matthew, thank, thank you very much for having me on the Interplanetary Podcast. And, and yeah, my pleasure. I appreciate your, your time and have a, successful weekend the interplanetary podcast is alive so there he was mr robert c jacobson i mean i know we say this a lot but what a legend he is actually a legend yeah i think i think he knows some people that you know jamie you reckon yeah well you know he's mates with uh, a, a chap that plays with bowie whoa so, i mean like as if i didn't already love him enough yeah yeah exactly you had to throw the b word at me i'm 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 absolutely smitten so definitely go and buy the book if you know that someone likes space why don't you buy it for them yeah it's a good book it really is i mean matt let me ask you this is it too early to buy a stocking filler i don't think it's too early to buy a stocking thing at all i think now's a good time to buy a stocking filler great time before the world so. falls apart and we can no longer do it. <laughs> <laughs> Matt, where was that optimism in the beginning well, of the show? Uh, well, talking about the world falling apart, Jamie, I'm going to let you tell the listeners the big podcast news. Oh, my goodness, listeners. Uh, try to fight back the tears. But um, after next week's show, the 200th episode, I'm going to take a break. Um, yeah, we've been doing this, Matt, for what, four, we worked out over four years now, uh, this weekly show. And, um, I absolutely love it beyond imagination. And I love all of you peeps have been so kind to us. Uh, the podcast, don't worry, the podcast is still going ahead because Matthew is absolutely the right person to be the heart of the podcast going forward. But yeah, I'm taking a little break. Um, I will definitely be back uh, at some point. But I'm taking a bit of a break to write some music because, Matt, I've bought a load of musical equipment um, and, and I think that maybe I can write one mediocre song. What do you reckon? I reckon I reckon there's a mediocre song lying somewhere deep within It's Jamie. somewhere in, it's in, in my soul. It's in and I'm going to try and get it out because we're very busy with work, both of us, and, and any spare time goes into the podcast. So I'm going to have a little break and put my spare time into another project of music. So wish me luck and I will 100% be back. So as I say, don't, uh, you know, just don't do anything stupid. Yeah. 
right. So anyway, <laughs> J- Jamie is a brother from another mother for me. He's he's but we've oh. we've become very close friends, haven't we? Over over we the have. podcast, we have. So, I mean, as if so, we weren't so, close enough. Exactly, we were close friends before, but I feel as though it's brought us closer together just like space has a tendency to do doesn't it bring it people does. together it does that to people and yes and, and so obviously jamie will be back i have on the patreon channel i've put up a little survey so if the listeners want to uh, have a look at the survey it's just to give me some ideas of what we want to do next the patrons have already had their say it looks like I'm going to be trying to have a special guest host each week, and maybe the uh, and the patrons themselves will form part of this circle of of special guest hosts each week until Jamie is fit to return. <laughs> so <laughs> we want we to should... <laughs> know definitely what you would like to hear going forward, and uh, if that means tweaking the show a little bit, then we're going to do that. Yeah. Uh, we we're very conscious of that. We want this to be for you, and it is for you. It's always been for you. Um, we've never done any advertising, and uh, we want to make sure that the people who support us, um, including, of course, our lovely patrons, that that they are our priority. So, yeah, thank you so much for all the support. My God, four years. Um, so there we have it. That's well, my you- supernova. Oh, boom. Like a massive star, you've done a yeah. burp of dust on us all. There we go. <laughs> Sorry for covering you've you all in my plasma dust. <laughs> but yes, ho- hopefully, you know it, it's 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 going to be good. It's going to be good. It's going to be it's going to be. It is. It's, it's going to be, be better, new times. So it's, bear it, with you know, us. We'll we'll, we'll 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 just take it one week at a time. So two oh one onwards. There's some. There's already some special plans. I've already got. I've already got my two oh one host. There we up. go. Yeah, it's it's there gonna be go. it's gonna be awesome. That that that's it for that's it. episode one nine nine. That's our news. But we listen, listen, we will be back next week because two hundredth episode with, as I say, one of my favourite people ever, Eric Berger. We're gonna get some of the Patreons involved. You you can't miss that one because that's gonna be just the best thing ever. Yeah, I mean that is an order, literally. Yeah, it is an order. So yes, if you feel as though you want to have a, a say in the sh- shaping the future of the podcast, have a quick gander over at patreon where you'll find my little google form it's uh, it's, it's good i've already had some great yeah. suggestions give us some, some feedback and, and some That's good, really what good we're good, here for good input it's really lovely to hear nice comments as well like i mean what other podcast matt you know has the option to shape the show like that oh uh, eh? yeah I, I just don't know jamie this is beautiful it, things. This is unprecedented times all round. It really uh, is. <laughs> um, uh, uh, that's it, isn't it, Jamie? That's it. So, what are you up to this weekend, Matthew? I am. Do you know what? I don't know. I, th- I, I I'm going to do like like you, Jamie. I'm going to be doing a little bit of music. Yes. I've got to finish off a. Um, I've got to finish off a cover of a Queen cover, which I've done. It, it's a hard life, which actually turned out that the oh. guitar parts are really difficult and very complicated. Glory. Well, Matt, if anyone can do them, you can. And when are people going to be able to hear these Queen covers? You're, you're, I've heard them and they're insanely good. When are you uh, going to stop depriving you know, people? <laughs> well, do you know what? I that We might actually have a uh, – Jay, Ian and myself, we might do a uh, – now we've got all these covers, we might do a podcast uh, that – that delves into each song in depth while we play our covers. What do you think? I love that. 
that just need a, just is need something a name. I will absolutely subscribe to. So, ladies and gentlemen, keep looking up into the skies and see what you may spot. You might see a star going supernova. Yes, please do. Report back. Thank you. Au revoir. Bye, guys. See you soon. Bye. Bye.